Did you know one in five Americans live with a mental health problem? <laughs> that means unless you live in a cave, you know someone personally dealing with these issues. So join us and our special guests as we answer your questions, share real stories, and work to pull the curtain back on how stigma impacts our everyday lives and our communities. We believe that making a real impact happens best with candid conversations, laughter, and tears. We are your hosts, Jennifer Teague and Josh Moore, and this is Impact Stigma. Good morning, evening, or afternoon, and Jennifer's also here. <laughs> You're hilarious. Hi, everybody. How's How it are going? you? It's going pretty good. Today has been... Oh, I know. I know. It's a big day. Your baby boy I now know. has a driver's license. He did. This has been one of those... Oh, my goodness. This has been quite the experience. So, his birthday was in May, and mm-hmm. because of COVID, we kind of had to uh, lock it down, and it took months and months to get an appointment and we finally had our appointment today and you know it's different driving in my opinion it's different taking boys through the driving experience and it's for girls my daughter was like let's do this and Deason just looked like he was gonna you know shake right out of his shoes but he did it I'm so proud of him that's good yeah I wish I could pay them to not let my daughter drive (laughs) I gotta get her learner's permit like I kind of feel that way though I feel that way you don't it's just she can't even reach the gas pedal well that's what can't you scoot her up yeah, I guess if I bought a booster seat and extension <laughs> pedals. She's just little. She's tiny. I have this. Everybody makes fun of me and says I need a booster seat, too. Plus, I'm pretty sure she will have road rage. Maybe she gets it from you. Possibly. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> well, every parent out there knows the fear and, and fright of an excitement and relief and all the crazy roller coaster emotions of having their kid finally get their driver's license. And for me, it is, oh my gosh, I don't have to jump in the car and race home and pick him up and take him to baseball practice and all of the different things. You know, he gets to finally be responsible and do that for himself. So I'm excited. And you get to deal with, who is that guy pushing the car down the hill at three in the morning to start it down the next neighborhood? If he ever did that, he he knows better. That's going to happen. No. I'm a guy. I don't know. Well, he's got a job, too, so hopefully he's working and uh, doing all of his other stuff. But anyway. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, he better, right? That's right. What else has been going on in your world? A whole lot of nothing. A whole lot of nothing. Well, except for collecting some Funko Pops here and there, and that's about it. Yeah. Well, school's starting. You have a very, you have a quite the collection, Josh. Yeah. Just, I'm going to stop right there. I'm not going to let you get away with that one. Yeah. Josh has how many? How many do you have? Pushing 300. Holy crap. That's a lot. Yeah. It's border. It's bordering on a problem it is a problem <laughs> and what's worse is my wife collects them too and she has that many and she's an enabler so this is technically your fault jody i'm sorry <laughs> well they're cute so i mean what are yeah. you gonna do well um you know it's almost back to school time for everybody mm-hmm. so that's a really stressful thing i know we're we're getting ready to start back to school but um and we've got a big month coming up next we do month. i was going to jump right into that so you know people are getting back to school but guess what for for what we do at frontier health and the frontier health foundation september is a really big month for us it's actually uh recovery month it's national recovery month for um, the month of september and national suicide prevention month so it's a really big important month and world prevention suicide prevention day is september 10th that's right that's right. We were definitely looking to find the, we were looking around to make sure we got all of our colors right and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And we're excited. I, you know, some people say you got to wear yellow. Some people say you wear teal and purple and I'm kind of in the fence. What do you think? Well, I think that you wear whatever color you want to wear for that day. Like, I don't know. 
Well, there were there was a debate. We had a debate. Yeah, between like what teal was and purple and yellow? Yeah, what was the official colors? Because oh. there's official colors. Uh, the suicide prevention website has teal and purple. That's, That's what, what it is. That's what, what I is. thought. Yeah. Bingo, can, bingo. You can actually pre-order your shirts now. Yeah, sorry, we oh. weren't clear. That's what we were talking about. I kind of just threw her under the bus there. real quick. <laughs> we haven't even introduced what her yet. Color? I know. This podcast has been one that I know I've been looking forward to for quite some time just because of our guest speaker, number one, and the topic. And um, with I'm just so excited about this, about this today and just can't wait for you all to hear our guest's powerful, powerful story of overcoming addiction and her journey to where she is today. So without further ado, I would like to welcome our special guest, Polly Jessen. Thank you guys for having me. That's like a, you set the bar way too high. <laughs> no. um, you know, just at the most basic level, I'm just grateful to be alive today and I'm grateful to have a story that I can share with other people. That's Absolutely. awesome. Thanks for joining us. And, you know, why don't you tell the listeners out there, you know, what's your current role with Frontier Health and what do you kind of do? Well, right now I am a recovery navigator with the Frontier Health Crisis Team. And it is still a relatively new program. Mm -hmm. We're actually in the beginning of our third year. And what it consists of is peers like me, people in recovery from substance use and mental illness who have found a solution. And we are dispatched as part of the crisis team to do assessments on people and make right. referrals for treatment. That's awesome. Definitely needed so much. It's just such a in, important stage and part of that stepping into a journey towards recovery for sure. I'm glad that you're here and uh, we appreciate all you do. Thank you. So today's topic is a pretty serious one. So before we begin, I would like to make sure that our listeners know that if you are inspired anytime during this podcast to reach out for help or even if you feel triggered in any way, please don't hesitate at all to call our 24-7 crisis hotline. And that number is 877-928-9062. And someone will be there to help you. Also, if you've been a past listener, you know we are all about candid and humorous conversations about stigma. So please know that this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment for mental and behavioral health issues. If you do need assistance, please visit the Frontier Health website at FrontierHealth.org for more information. All right. Well, now, without further ado, I guess, again, let's get this big conversation started. So, Polly... You first shared your story with me a few months ago, and after listening to it, I just knew I wanted you as a guest on Impact Stigma. And um, right now, I'm going to invite you to do the same thing here with our listeners, and will you please share um, with everybody your recovery and redemption story with our listeners, please? Absolutely. I'm, like I said, very grateful. Um, September is not only Recovery Month, but also Suicide Prevention Month. And both of those things are a huge part of my story. I often share, you know, kind of jokingly as a toddler, you know, I was I already knew I was different than others. I remember like very vividly when my parents were talking about taking away my pacifier and I depended on that thing. <laughs> it soothed me. It kept me busy when I was anxious or upset. I could put pacifier in my mouth, feel just fine. So, you know, there was no way I was going to let them take that away. Um <laughs> No. So I came up with this plan and I had three or four passies hidden all throughout the house. Gotcha. So when they took one and I'd pop back up with another one, you know, and I would even like try to hide it in my pockets and things like that. So, you know, even as a toddler, I had already come up with the idea that something outside of myself could fix or manage or control whatever was going on inside myself. Throughout school, I was always very outgoing. Um, you know, a lot of people think, that's like such a good attribute someone has. But for me, it really covered up the um, insecurity that I felt inside. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like if I had 
all the friends in the world and no one hated me, then I didn't have to hate myself. That yeah. outward validation. So, you know, I actually had my first suicidal thoughts in elementary school. Um, it was more like passive thoughts, like, well, what if I wasn't here? I mean, they, they kind of came out of nowhere, and it, it really came from a sense of, um, you know, lack of self-acceptance on a basic level. Fear I think of a lot of us go through things like that. Mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, I know I had some issues in, high, in kindergarten, I mean, bullies and things like that, and just kind of felt like I didn't want to be there, too. So it's hard that. to grow up, you know, and I also have a, um, you know, genetic predisposition for depression, addiction, anxiety, and things like that. So, you know, I wasn't aware that that was in my family right. when I was eight years old. You know, I also didn't know where to go or who to talk to about those feelings. And I was also afraid if I talked about feeling insecure that no one would want to be around me. So I covered that up and I, you know, I say this all the time, but like I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. So I made sure that I fit in everywhere. <laughs> so growing up through high school, I was an overachiever, aced every test, played every sport. I really got involved with tennis and golf. At a young age. Wow, um, that's awesome. I was um, nationally ranked as a junior golfer by the time I was in the ninth grade. Wow. That's awesome. That's pretty excellent. So I, I spent a lot of my time excelling outwardly and things like that. That made me feel good when I did well. I was also very prone to be very hard on myself as well. High school was also around the time where my mother found out she had breast cancer. Oh, wow. And that was, um, I mean... Like, I remember when I found that out, I was actually playing in a golf tournament, and she was um, there with me, and the doctor had called her, and um, that was the one time I ever quit a game, like the first time I picked my ball up and said, okay, let's go home, you know, and I was scared, and I was afraid, and I didn't know what was going to happen, and I didn't know how to deal with my feelings, and my father growing up had been an alcoholic, you know, and I've got his permission to share that also, but I grew up seeing him deal with stress that way. Yeah. And I resented him at times because he was emotionally unavailable and yeah. I was afraid. And I know you know what I mean. I do. So I had developed these codependent things, too. You know, I wanted to keep track of how much he was drinking. I wanted to know where he was. I wanted to pour out his beer, leave notes yeah. on his beer, make him stop. You know, yeah. I'd act out behaviorally. I would try to do really well and get his approval. I mean, it was just I, I had very poor coping skills at that time. And so when my mom found out she had breast cancer, I thought to myself, well, why don't I just drink about it? Wow, yeah. So that night, I waited till everybody was in bed, and I went and I kind of broke into my dad's shop where he kept his alcohol, um, and I stole a 12-pack of beer and took it to my room. And I remember sitting there on the floor just kind of feeling numb, and I cracked open one can after another and just chugged, you know? Yeah. And it was so cold that it hurt my throat and it hurt my head, but after a little while... The feelings went away. The anxiety went away. I fell asleep and I slept, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I saw that more of as a solution, you know, a way to self-medicate at the time. Right. So that actually. Never intended it for. Became a dependent. No. 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 Um, And I mean, you know, my friends at the time in school, they would like party on the weekends or whatever, but I wasn't even really interested in that. Yeah. I was interested in controlling my feelings and, you know, getting rid of them, really. Right. So I continued drinking daily and hiding it in my room just about every night. Uh, my mother ended up passing away about two weeks before my senior prom. 
And um, the last thing that we really did together was go shopping for my prom dress and all that stuff. And if you know me, which you guys do, I'm not <laughs> the type to like. I don't think you're a fancy dress kind of person. I that's yeah. okay. <laughs> I clean up pretty good, but I don't like to. So um, here, yeah, I'm the same way though. So I, it, it was meaningful the dress that I had because it was like I was wearing it in honor of her that night, and I ended up getting voted prom queen. That's so That's great! Awesome. That's awesome. Well, if it makes you feel any better, my grandmother used to try to dress me like a doily. So <laughs> <laughs> the more lace something had, the better. So I've always been kind of anti. That's awesome. She just shared her awesome, beautiful picture with me. So that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, I was so cool. Yeah, that's but, awesome. You know, so, and that was meaningful, you know, to have had the support of my friends and stuff like that at the time. I still wasn't well, you know, obviously. I had actually accepted a full scholarship to play golf at ETSU. Wow. And after the death of my mother, I mean, gosh, no, I was done. I didn't yeah. want to play golf. I didn't want to go to school. I, I didn't want to do anything. That's so hard. I mean, anybody that goes to that. That's a big that. loss. Yeah. It's devastating. It's a huge trauma, for yeah. sure. And at 18 years old, you know, technically, legally, I was an adult, but I had not developed any of the skills no. needed. We call them at my house, because I have a 19-year-old daughter, um, we call them baby adults. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> just for some, you know, just to sprinkle a little little humor over it, we, we just call them, she hates it. And she gets so mad at me, but I'm like, I love you. You're a baby adult. Okay, thanks. Yeah, well, I was being entrusted all of a sudden with all right. these responsibilities. Well. I couldn't really rely on my father. And, you know, the one yeah. constant support in my life wasn't there anymore. I do have a brother who we're very close and very supportive, but he moved far away. Mm-hmm. So it was like I was alone there. And, you know, we also talk about in recovery, like when you start drinking or using, that's kind of where your mind is at and where it kind of stops. Yeah. Um, so... 16, 17 years old, I pretty much, you know, my emotional development and capabilities kind of stopped there. So I continued drinking. And actually, right before I went to ETSU, um, or was going to, I got into my mother's medication, the all the meds that she hadn't taken. And there was so many, like, opiates left over, things that she had not taken. And it was one of those where it was like, well, I've Alcohol works. I wonder what this will do. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's add that to that, too. And I ended up trying some very powerful opiates for the first time, and I was completely hooked at that point. I, I had also made friends, you know, with people that were more interested in drinking and using than doing anything else. So I stuck with those people, and I learned different drugs I could use, what they did. I learned different ways to use them. And, you know, sadly, at that point, I had just accepted my life was going to be that, that I was going to live my life as a drug addict as long as mm-hmm. that lasted. So the point where I became suicidal for the very first time was not very long after that. I was 21 years old, and I had just gotten my first DUI, the first of three, within less than a year. It was terrible. So I was alone in my apartment, and I just just was done. You know, and you get to that point where I, I didn't have any resources. I didn't know. I'd never heard of treatment before. All I knew was that you mess up real bad, you go to jail. You know, um, so I had, which is very serious. I mean, it's very, you know, I talked to my mom a couple of days ago because of this podcast and I did ask her a few questions, but not to get off on, you know, anything, but that's very, I mean, I was like, the stereotype is there. That's what, that's why we're here talking about it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much of a stereotype and that's what you think it is. Oh, I just was a criminal now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So, you know, my first suicide attempt was out of desperation. You know, I don't think it was that I, I necessarily wanted to die, but I couldn't continue living the way I was, and that was the only option that I knew of. Right. So, um, you know, 
fortunately that didn't work and that oh, was Oh yeah, my, we're so freaking glad <laughs> you're here. That was my first experience <laughs> yeah. with like you know, actually being referred to a psychiatric hospital that made me aware that I had other problems, you know, it yes. was like where did this anxiety start? Where did this depression start? How did it lead to this, you know, and it was like the first time I became aware, you know, of that. I wasn't even I wasn't quite able to change things yet um, because of the the strength of the addiction, but the awareness was there, and we yeah. call that planting seeds. That's awesome. Along the way, we learn something new every time we mess up, and then we try again. You know, my story continues with in and out of jail numerous times, all drug and alcohol related. And the final time that I went to jail, the judge actually offered me rehab. And wow. My first thought was maybe that would be the great thing to offer the first time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just saying, you know, we're a little out loud here. It's okay. <laughs> this was early 2000s. I know. So I'm going to, you know, no. take that. Like, I'm going to give it to the early I, 2000s. It's me. I always have to have my little jab. Hey, guys, let's let's do some great work for people and maybe give them a hand instead of a, you know, put them away. I agree. Yeah. I, I jumped on that opportunity, though. You know, that anything was better than jail. Absolutely. Um, so I went to Magnolia Ridge, actually, for the first time in 2006. I had been living pretty much in and out of my car. I did have an apartment, but it was like dilapidated. It was I was basically homeless with no real friends. So I was I jumped on that opportunity and I went to Magridge and they showed me a room with a bed with sheets on it, clean uh-huh. sheets, two pillows. They said it's dinner time. Come eat with us. I sat at a table with a bunch of other recovering addicts who were like happy. That was something to see the I first bet. time. Like, you guys are happy to be here, you know? Um, yes, they were. And um, they befriended me, and I started listening and went to group and started into therapy and things like that. I had had a therapist before, but it wasn't something that I had ever, like, fully engaged with. Yeah, it takes a while. I think that's another thing. People think therapy is for crazy people or people that are disturbed and I mean I did two years of therapy and it changed my life and I wasn't I just needed somebody to to listen and not say uh, not know me and not have any you know Mm -hmm. that anonymity is so important and that was really life-changing so that's perfect just putting a little therapy plug in there for everybody therapy is good (laughs) I was gonna plug it too so at that point were you willing to accept you know like this is time to change now. Was yeah. That, was that your turning point? Oh, it was in 2006. I was completely motivated to change. I did not want drugs or alcohol in my life at all. Good. Um, you know, they did suggest that we follow up with things like community 12-step meetings and mm-hmm. things like that. And at the time, I was like, meh. Oh, rehab. You get cured when you go to rehab. Right. You know? And that's a, a stigma about rehab. That's right. right. You, Recovery is absolutely. an ongoing process that's after right. that fact. Um, but... I'm so glad you brought that up because, I mean, we'll get into it a little bit later, but that was an eye-opener for me, too, as the person that loves an addict. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom is in recovery, and um, she cleared it up with me. It's 18 years. Woohoo! And um, yeah, so I'm really proud of her. We'll talk about it in a little while, but um, but yeah, she's uh, at, when I thought she, you know, she went to rehab. I thought, well, she's done. Everything's good. Yeah, (laughs) you know. Not the case, but anyway, I digress. I mean, it wasn't for me, and I did maintain sobriety for almost four years, but I still had these lingering codependency issues. I still had this mental illness, you know, this these untreated things and these things that I wasn't really actively working on. So, you know, I relapsed. I relapsed after a relationship ended, and that was my excuse. Right. But the truth was I had an addiction that was brewing, being untreated, white knuckle in it, you know, um, and looking back, 
yeah, I was clean and sober for four years, but I was kind of miserable. I wasn't doing anything to help anybody else. I was isolating myself at home. You know, life could have been much better if I had realized that. Right. right. So that's why my life now is so important to do this kind of outreach and to have the job that I have where I do have that ability. Yeah. Um, you know, the majority of my clients right now are people that I see in hospitals who have recently overdosed or who, you know, have had that like extreme type of intervention mm-hmm. where they've had to be hospitalized. And that was my story every time, you know, other than that chance that I got to go to rehab from jail, I probably ended up in the ER four or five times from an overdose or a suicide attempt, you know. So I guess my point is right now that doesn't have to get that bad. Okay, so the second time that I ended up uh, in treatment was once again, it was following another suicide attempt. Um, And this one was one where, you know, I actually had kept my relapse hidden. Um, A lot of it was based on the stigma of someone relapsing after a period of sobriety, the shame that I felt, the guilt, and I was hiding it. And, you know, just to backtrack a tiny bit, uh, the first time that I went to treatment and got clean and sober, I encouraged my dad to go also. And this time was different because I could actually give him the experience of what it was like, you know. And he mm. said, okay, I'll go. And really? my, Yeah, my dad's been sober since 2007. That's oh, awesome. I'm going to cry. That's so, so great. He, I'm actually crying <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> I could. That's something, I mean, I never would have thought that I would have seen him become, you know, sober. So we have spent many years good job Polly's dad (laughs) yeah we've spent a lot of years repairing our relationship and growing our relationship and you know I'm so grateful he can be um, a dad to me now and a grandfather I've got two kids so that's um, awesome but they're adorable uh, (laughs) thank you they are oh I've got have it in for me with the one the two-year-old I'm afraid that karma has she's she is adorable and adorable, and that's all I'm going to say. She's just absolutely adorable. Yeah, but he's he's a great grandfather, um, and I'm very lucky for that. But, you know, I had moved back in with him after this breakup and relapsed. And it was almost like I found myself back, like, in 2002. Like, I was back in my own house trying to hide a relapse every single night. I had gotten as low as going to Sam's Club and buying a big pallet of mouthwash because it was easier to try to sneak that in the house than alcohol. You know, and doing demoralize. I mean, to me, like, you know, for an alcoholic to drink mouthwash, right. that's we that's demoralizing. It's stigma. That's shameful, whatever. But that the result for me was that I, I needed alcohol and it didn't matter. You know, I'm an alcoholic. So I did that for a while. I had gotten back on, you know, different types of pills and things and different drugs. And I had come up with a concoction of drugs that made me very unstable. I actually began um, hallucinating at times. I was hearing things that weren't there. I thought, you know, I became paranoid. I thought there was somebody in my house that was going to kill me, and I was afraid. You know, and looking back on it, it almost feels like a dream because it was so, like, out there. But, you know, that's where my mind had gotten. That's where the drugs and alcohol had taken my mind. Yeah. So. Kind of hijacked everything. Absolutely. I had no control. You know, when we we talk about, like, oh, why can't you just stop? Or why can't you just, like, not be crazy or whatever? No. It doesn't work that way. Mm -mm. Um, So I attempted suicide again during a four-hour blackout. I completely lost track of time. I have no idea what happened. Um, But I ended up back in the emergency room. Mm-hmm. And the doctor, you know, of course, referred me to a psychiatric hospital for detox. Thank goodness I needed that first. And then I went to Willow Ridge. Yeah, so I went to another residential program. And this time what was different was I completely surrendered. 
you know, us codependents have a lot of control issues and things like that. And I realized, you know, I certainly, I could not help another person. I certainly cannot help myself. Show me what to do. I surrender. So I became active in community 12-step groups. I got back into therapy regularly. I got on, you know, some medication that worked. And, you know, a doctor that could observe me on this medication, it helped that I was being transparent and honest, uh, speaking out about how I was feeling and when, you know, and that really helped. And then I became involved in service work. What could I do to give back? So I started sponsoring people. Um, I I eventually was hired as a tech at Willow Ridge a year after I graduated. Mm -hmm. So in 2013 is when I started working for Frontier Health in that way. In 2017, I believe, I became a certified peer recovery specialist. Right. Um, So I got a certification from the state to professionally help other people who are going through the same thing I did. That's awesome. And that's where I'm at now. My mom is too. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a a great program. Oh, my gosh. She loved it. If you are in recovery in Tennessee, please look into becoming a certified peer recovery specialist. We can use some as many good ones as we can. I know we definitely need them. And there's a lot of people out there in need of your, in need of help that need them too. So, yeah. your story is just um, I don't know. It's just impactful. And my biggest thing was I just wanted people to hear a story that was a success story and a happy story. And that while it's really hard to talk about sometimes, and it's really hard to share that stuff and be really vulnerable, we just thank you for um, the opportunity to hear it because somebody's gonna there's gonna be somebody. That needed to hear it and when they hear it it's going to make a change and I'm just really excited for that. Thank you and you know Absolutely. the success is not just abstaining from drugs and alcohol the success is really when we change our lives and we reach the goals that we've set for ourselves and we have healthy relationships and we set good examples and we're good to be around you know yeah um, I've been married now to my wife for six years and we've been together for almost eight and you know we just had a baby two years ago and you know we actually just bought a house a few months ago that's awesome you know some for someone like me to have a child and a family and own a home and to have been through you know the hell that I went through with right. addiction right. is a miracle. You know, and I joke about it sometimes. I'm like, yeah, I'm about 10 years behind everybody else. But the truth is, yeah. It's so wonderful to, I can't even put into words how happy I am that that I have the opportunity to know you. I just, even though we work together, I feel like we're friends. And you're an amazing human being. And I have had several moments where I've, I've had a poly a Polly in my office and um, <laughs> we've had a conversation and she's helped me through some things I struggle with. So you are, not only are you just an inspiration to so many people, which is so glad you're here and so glad you get the opportunity to work for Frontier Health. You are such an asset. You really are. Thank you. You're welcome. Hello, everyone. Like what you're hearing so far? Well, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button right now. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. And we greatly appreciate your support. So let's get back to the show. Thank you, Polly, for your openness and vulnerability while you shared your powerful story with us. I am just sincerely moved. And I know there's a listener out there that is uh, really connected with you right now and, and can see the light at the end of the tunnel because of it. So thank you. So I have a question. During your journey, if you would, could you just share with us some common misconceptions about addiction and recovery um, that you've experienced both personally and professionally? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a ton of misconceptions because addiction is a disease and it doesn't fit any particular mold for people. Everybody experiences it in a different way. You know, sometimes I I give the example of 
the guy who is at the, the a twelve step meeting and he's worried that he may not be an alcoholic because he only drinks on weekends. You know, yeah. but then he continues to share his story and he says, Well, I obsess about it all throughout the week. You know, it's right. all I can think about until <laughs> I get to Friday night. Right. You know, and it disrupts my ability to be present with my family and right. my job and et cetera, you know. And um then, you know, another guy shares in the meeting and he said, Well, most alcoholics or most non-alcoholics aren't worried that they're alcoholics. Right. right. So right. if you're questioning that you may have a problem, you do. Right. If it's causing a disruption in your life, no matter how significant, you don't have to be in jail to say, oh, gosh, I have a problem. Yeah. All right. So that brings me to a question. So when was the first time you realized you needed help and it was easy to accept the help or were there obstacles that may have uh, gotten in your way? Well, you know, in the beginning, um, it was fun. In the mm-hmm. beginning, the alcohol and the drugs worked, you know, but there was a point in time and I can't exactly put my finger on it, but there was a point in time when that substance stopped working, and then I began to have the consequences. Right. You know, the internal consequences came, the depression, the anxiety, the suicidal right. thoughts, the insomnia, the whatever, you know, and then the external came. It was the the legal issues, the lost my housing, you know, lost my friends, lost my relationships. So, you know, even though the first time I went to treatment – I wasn't quite ready to do everything that was, you know, suggested. The second time I kind of was, the second time I had realized. Mm-hmm. Um, now tell us about that because I know there's a little well, cool I think story behind that. I'd like to hear it. I think they say the average amount of times that someone seeks, you know, treatment or help or whatever is like seven before right. it sticks. And that's just the average number. For me, it was many more times than that. I mean, right. I just went to rehab twice, but I had um, been in and out of other things more than that. But I think what was different this last time was that I became ready to surrender. And when I say surrender, I mean I had to stop fighting myself. Right. I'll tell a quick story real quick about, I call it a miracle because I'm not sure otherwise if I would have ever changed my perception. But I got out of treatment and I told my dad, I was like, we need to take a trip. I want to go to the beach. And the particular beach is Tybee Island, Georgia. And that's a place where my mother and I would go every year together growing up. Every single year, just me and her. Mm -hmm. So for me, Tybee Island was a very spiritual place. It was a place where I felt connected to my mom. And I felt like, you know, throughout my addiction, I had just disgraced her. And, you know, she wasn't proud of me, blah, blah, blah. But I wanted to go there and feel connected to her one more time. Right. So I went to the beach and I went to a meeting And this guy, it was a stranger, I never met him before, but he had listened to my story and he said, I want you to go out on the beach at night by yourself and just listen to the ocean, just pray to whatever's out there. You know, he said, it doesn't have to be, you know, God or Buddha or whatever, just pray to whatever's out there for peace. Right. And he took his arm around me, he said, you know, you need peace. And, um, you know, that meant something to me, you know, that was... That's a big deal. Yeah. So yeah. I thought, well, gosh. It takes I'll a lot of guts to tell somebody you don't know to do something like that. <laughs> yeah. Or to, like, accept love from a stranger, yeah. which is, like, Thank unconditional. You well, it was. <laughs> and, that, well, that's what we do in recovery. Right. You know, and he was showing me an example of that early on. So I went out to the beach every night that we were there, and I prayed. I, pray, I saw a crab. I was like, crab, I need peace. Uh, the ocean waves were crashing. I thought, you know, waves, I need peace. I looked at the stars in the sky, asked them for peace, and just, you know, kept persisting. And the very last day we were there, my daughter, my oldest daughter, wanted to climb the lighthouse. 
And oh my gosh, like I had just finished detox. It was like 98 degrees outside. It's like 270 <laughs> some steps. You are not in the mood to no, climb a lighthouse. I, was, I did not, I was not ready for that. But I, you know, it was almost like a conquest too. It's like, by God, I'm going to climb this and lighthouse. And the things we do know? for our children, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we're standing in line for the lighthouse and I see a cat, a little orange cat, like laying on the ground, you know, in the shade. And I say, come on, let's go pet the cat, you know, to my little girl. And we ran over there, and as I bent down to pet the cat, like, I, I mean, I just, everything, like, went black almost. Like, I completely froze, and all the hair stood up on my body. And I looked over, and I just started hollering for my dad to come over there. And I, when I looked down, the cat was laying directly on a brick in the pathway that had my mom's name on it. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Just laying right on it. <laughs> and the lady that worked at the lighthouse heard me holler and let my dad and she came over there. She's like, are you OK? And of course, like I've got tears streaming oh. down my face. And like yeah. I was like, no, <laughs> that's my mom. You know, wow. that's that. And did you like, know about that? No. How um, did you find out how she how did she do that? I asked my dad, I called my brother, I called my uncle, I called some of my mom's friends, and nobody had any idea that that was there. It, it oh. wasn't until later when I went and talked to my, my first sponsor about it, and she looked at me, and just in the calmest voice ever, she said, I think maybe your mom put that there for you to find at it, the exact moment That's that right. you needed to find it <laughs> for your recovery. And, and I tell you, from that moment and that miracle... I experienced a willingness that I didn't have before. Wow. You know, thank you for sharing. I'm crying. Thank you. And, yeah. you know, miracles happen everywhere all the time if we're paying attention, you know. Yeah. And not everybody gets one of those big burning bush things that happens. But if we pay attention to our life and we pay attention to what we ask for and we show up yeah. and we be there and we do what's next, we'll see it. We'll see yeah. it too. Miracles are tiny sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're just a tiny little glimmer. And I'm so thankful that your mom made that decision to trust that you would find it exactly at the right time. That's a really big deal. So thank you so much for sharing that. That's yeah. really cool. So I actually, um, you know, wanted to say that there's a flip side to this conversation, I think. And this is where I'm going to, after asking my mom permission to talk about this, um, this is where I'm going to kind of share from the other side, from the receiving side, I guess. And this is going to be hard for me. So all you listeners out there, please bear with me while I might get teary on this part. But we did say we kind of do this through laughter and tears, too. So here we go. So, you know, I know my, I'm, I call myself a, the daughter of a recovered alcoholic and drug addict. And uh, like I said before, big shout out to my mama one more time because she deserves it. I'm proud of her for 18 years sober. So um, she's an amazing person. She's a peer, a peer recovery specialist, and she spoke at Washington, D.C., and She's done some pretty amazing things. She's my Shiro. And, um, you know, but, you know, when my mom, a little background, I've pretty much spent the entirety of my life um, growing up my childhood with an alcoholic and drug addicted mom. So I have lots and lots of memories of her just not being there. You know, she would black out. My parents would fight. You know, I was kind of left by myself. And interestingly enough, she did manage to keep the house rolling and, you know, dinner on the table and um, she would call herself a functional alcoholic and, um, until she was unfunctional, right? <laughs> you know, What's that's that kinda, like, <laughs> yeah, well, she, it's a joke. Cause she's like, I was never functional. I would just thought I was, you know? And so while we were growing up and she was an, she said, you know, active addiction, active drinking, um, there were so many times, I mean, so many times that she would, you know, I would just say, mom, please, if you love me, 
You know, if you love me, here we go. If you love me, you'll stop. If mm-hmm. you cared about us at all, you'll stop. And so for so long, I just, I couldn't understand why my mom hated me and didn't love me and didn't love us enough to get sober. I thought, you know, she's doing this and this is, she's just a bad, you know, she's just a bad mom. She's a bad person or she doesn't love us or she doesn't care. There was so many, so many ups and downs of emotions that I went through for so long. And I kind of, you know, shared with us, we talked, Polly and I have talked way before we started this podcast. So, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to share is that I remembered the very day that I drove up to a Presbyterian church here in Johnson City, and um, I was just distraught. And I got out of the car. It was an empty parking lot. There was nobody in, but for whatever reason, the front door was unlocked. And I walked in, and the you know the sanctuary was unlocked. And I walked in, and I felt so crazy. But I walked up to right at the very front where the you know where the everything is, and just sat down on the stairs and just prayed for somehow, some way, for my mom to find the, the way out, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I just, cr- I cried so hard. It was like all space and time just kind of evaporated, and I was in that moment. And then I had the next experience, which I'm sure a lot of us have. You mentioned you had had that before. I get in my car, and I think, okay, great, everything's good and well and done, and nothing happened. And I spent about, you know, she got worse and worse and worse, and I spent a long time pretty much bitter about the whole thing. And um, it wasn't until my my daughter was 17 months old, seven years later, that she finally um, <laughs> she finally went. So um, you know those miracles happen mm-hmm. in the right time, and they happen when the person that is suffering from addiction is ready to take the steps that they need. It's not about you know it took me a long time and a lot of talking and a lot of love and empathy, and understanding, and research, because I'm a researcher, um, to understand that my mom has a disease, and she loves me unconditionally, and always did, and it was never about, you know, not loving me, so I would say there's a lot of people out there, I know, that deal with this too, and you know, I don't normally get emotional on a podcast, but this is a big deal, it's my mom, so of course, you know, I'm going to get emotional, but you know, I just want to know if you could say anything, Polly, to the people that are listening right now, you know, and as hard as it is for me to say, that little girl in me that just wanted her mama to be okay, you know, about what it is. You know, it's not about you don't love somebody. It's about it's a disease. So, mm-hmm. you know, can you just share with us, you know, kind of tell somebody, hey, listen, if you're dealing with somebody that's an addict, this is what I want you to know about them so that you can understand it. You don't have to feel bad about yourself and think that they don't love you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was that little girl too, you know, with my father. Right. And, um, you know, I learned a lot more about the disease of addiction um, once I got treatment. And I learned it's mainly composed of two things. First one is obsession. Mm-hmm. Obsession is that fixed idea in my mind over and over again that this is the solution to my problem. And then there's the compulsive aspect. The compulsive aspect is once I start Mm -hmm. with one pill, (laughs) one drink, one fix, one behavior, one whatever, I cannot stop. And I will not stop until there's a power greater than myself that intervenes. And I want to add to the love thing because that is incredibly important. If love could have kept us sober, (laughs) nobody would have ever started. Right. You know? Um, and I have... It's hard to see that when you're little. When I'm 17 and all I want is my, a normal life, I just want to feel normal. You know, I just want my mom to be well and not be sick. 
you know that you don't see it that way you think it's you people a lot of times when you're a lot you know you're the person on the other side it's like you feel like you're just not I always felt like I wasn't a good enough daughter we carry the weight of the world I know right I was like I must not be a good enough daughter if she can't stop for me you know and that there's certain aspects of codependency that feed into that also and that's another reason that I work with my therapist because those types of behaviors manifest themselves when I'm clean and sober it's been said, there's, here's kind of a joke for you. If you're wondering if you're an alcoholic, okay, the difference, <laughs> Shoot. The difference between an alcoholic and a problem drinker, let's mm-hmm. say, is that the problem drinker puts the drink down and the problem goes away. The alcoholic puts the drink down and the problem begins. Mm-hmm. That's very profound and funny. <laughs> <laughs> I can laugh now, you know, know. not when all my problems are <laughs> Right, there, exactly. But. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's awesome. All right, so you've seen addiction in the movies, and you kind of see, you know, the stereotype around it. Is it really like that? Addiction is as individual as recovery is. I believe that, you know, to someone, drinking on the weekend interferes with their daily life. You know, to someone else, using IV drugs has become their bottom Whatever it is, I think that we have to ask ourselves if it's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. My mom, you know, has told me so many times, you know, addiction doesn't look like the people that you see on the movies, like you said, Josh, and like people on the street. Sometimes it's the housewife next door like her. Addiction's not a moral problem, and there's really no argument behind addiction being a disease. It is. Right. Oh, absolutely. What we learn is how does addiction react when we treat it in certain ways? Right. It's definitely, you know, she was telling me, she was like, that's my biggest thing is just to have the disease of of addiction at the same level as something like cancer. You know, I mean, you've said it yourself, you know, addiction is the cancer of mental health that has no discrimination whatsoever. And it, it affects all kinds of people. And I just think that, you know, if we can see it as a disease and treat it like a disease, and not look at the person that's suffering as a morally inept or a bad person, you know, because they just, you know, they just won't quit. Why can't they just stop? Absolutely. You know, it's just such a hard thing for for the people that, if you're not an addict, I understand it's not. It's hard to understand if you're not an addict. I mm-hmm. get that. But it doesn't change the fact that it's disease, not a morally, it's not morally, you know, related at all. You know, if your neighbor came down with cancer or broke their foot. Uh, you I know, have a so fractured foot right now. <laughs> and um, For example, yeah. you would want to maybe make dinner for your neighbor. Go over there and listen and talk to them and see how they're feeling. Offer them a ride to their next appointment. If we acted that way with mental illness and addiction. Oh my goodness, yes yeah. ma'am. Yes ma'am. Instead of saying, what's wrong with you? Let's start asking what happened to you. Yeah. And really listen. And how can we help? Exactly. How can I help, you know? And I just think that's the biggest thing is, you know, I was reading something, and and Polly, please jump in. Um, I'm not, like I said before, this is not for diagnostic purposes. This is a podcast to shed light on different aspects of mental health, and addiction is one of them. And, you know, we want to educate people in a way and bring up public awareness and, and help people. But we also, you know, this is all about stigma, and stigma is specific to mental health. And um, it has to do with the way that people look at someone, the way the public, uh, you know, has been basically trained to see, you know, what is going on when it comes to addiction. So, 
you know, the things I've read are education's really important. This is kind of what we're doing with this. Asking people questions, this is really important. And um, I'm going to totally swerve off. But, you know, my daughter, it's funny, my daughter Ainsley isn't afraid to talk to anybody. And, like, if she's actually got a friend, she's met people in wheelchairs and things like that. And my sister-in-law is, is also a paraplegic. And so she's not afraid to just walk up and say, hey, what happened to you? You know, like, super innocent. And that's so nice. And the person's like, well, this is what happened. And they all of a sudden, she doesn't see the chair anymore. She sees that person. So... That is what I mean when I say let's impact stigma. Let's take the what we see as the problem or the issue or the disease and and make it that, not the person. I want to be able to say, you know, Polly, you are Polly. You are you are not an addict to me. You're mm-hmm. Polly. You know, you're my friend. And mom, you're my mom. You're not an addict to me. You're my mom. But you suffer from addiction, and I'm so grateful that you got well and you're continuing to stay well. So we want to inspire people you know, to reach out for help and to talk about it and ask questions and just, you know, what else would you say would be a great way to help reduce stigma surrounding addiction? I think the language we use is important. Right. Instead of saying, I'm Polly, I'm an addict. I can say, I'm Polly and I'm a person in long-term recovery. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, just like that, like this person is no longer suffering with this addiction. This person is living in spite of this addiction. Yeah. I think that that's important, too. Thank you. That's awesome. We know that Frontier Health offers multiple ways to help those suffering from addiction throughout our region, but our listeners might not. So would you just tell us um, about options that are out there for those that are ready to start on their recovery journey? Yes, I'd love to. We do have Turning Point, which is our brand new facility in Johnson City that serves as a 24-hour walk-in assessment site. Right. And it also includes our in-house CSU unit, our detox unit, and our male residential program. Um, We have outpatient services available in every county in this region. Mm -hmm. You can call for information. You can call Frontier Health. You can call Turning Point. The number for Turning Point is 926-0940. And if you wouldn't mind saying the crisis number one more time, just in case you find that you are in crisis and need further assistance Absolutely. With that. It's 877-928-9062. All right. Thank you all so much. And um, I don't know, I hope all of you all out there have been inspired. I feel like this has been one of my favorite days. So thank you, Polly, for helping me talk about something that was really hard. And I am just overwhelmed and excited about everyone that's going to get to hear your incredible story thank you for sharing with us thank you thank you for being thank you for being here thank you guys for having me stigma can make mental health problems worse and even stop a person from getting the help they need untreated mental illness places an enormous economic and emotional burden on our communities economic burden alone is in the billions and that directly affects all of us we all play a crucial role in creating a mentally healthy community one that is inclusive, rejects discrimination, and supports recovery. For us at Impact Stigma, this is way more than just a podcast. It is about igniting our communities, sharing our stories, and working together with listeners like you. We invite you to find out more about Impact Stigma on our website at impactstigma.com. One way you can make an impact right now is by sharing our podcast with your friends and family because you never know when something we talk about might be the reason someone you love asks for help. Mental illness is not a personal failure. We can't do this without you. So if you feel inspired to get involved, first, subscribe to this podcast. 
then go visit our website at impactstigma.com. Watch the video and read about how you can become an impact maker. Thank you for listening to Impact Stigma. You're so glad you chose us. We want to thank our guests again for sharing your impactful story and doing your part to Impact Stigma. Join us next time as we enjoy some laughs and hear impactful stories. Until then, this work needs you. So go be an impact maker. Thank you and be blessed.